You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for, uh, for faith, uh, Lord, that you give us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, uh, even with that, it, we still struggle. Uh, there are things we don't understand, uh, but Lord, that we would understand that the struggle is on our side and not on yours. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak clearly to us. Uh, and uh, Lord, where things are dark and ambiguous, Lord, that we would have the courage to actually let them be where you have left them and simply put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I want to thank you all uh, for, for being here today. Uh, it's, uh, y'all always ask the best questions. Uh, I can tell that it's ebb and flow. Uh, the now seventh graders last year won a real dinosaur kick, uh, but I guess y'all weren't really asking about dinosaurs uh, this year. Uh, and they found my answers completely unsatisfactory uh, last year. Uh, but uh, what I hope to do today is to be as clear as we possibly can. And also, if you've asked a question that I simply don't know the answer to, uh, I'm going to be honest with you and say, I don't know. Because the last thing that y'all need and that I would want is for you to walk away with Andrew Pearson's opinion. Because quite frankly, my opinion isn't worth a hill of beans. Uh, What we want to look to in your very good questions is what does God have to say in response uh, to the questions uh, that you've asked? What does God have to say? And uh, as we go through that, if if you'd like some clarification, uh, please do say, but wait a minute, what about this? Or uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, That and uh, for those of you out there, Uh, you can ask the same questions too. Wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, Or uh, any follow-up questions that you might have. And so, Rachel, do you have the microphone? David Tanner, do you have the microphone? I knew it. I knew it. It's really easy to play Clue with David Tanner. Uh, So, okay. You You can stand there or you can do whatever. Yeah, you can sit. Yeah, just so people can hear the questions. Sure. Okay, so the first question is, where did the name Jesus come from? All right, where did the name Jesus come from? So uh, the name Jesus, uh, Yeshua, is, uh, is the name that uh, the angel Gabriel uh, told uh, Joseph to name his son, uh, which is kind of funny because uh, y'all, um, uh, I would, most of y'all are from Birmingham, and so in the South, except for some people I'm looking at right now, but, but for, uh, for some people that, uh, and, and, but even for people outside of Birmingham, but this is especially prevalent in the South, uh, a lot of us have names that sound like law firms. And, uh, and why is that? Family names, right. We, we name people after, I mean, no matter how far-fetched they are. Uh, and uh, it was... Fitz Allison had an assistant that came with him down from New York City when he became the Bishop of South Carolina. And after being in Charleston for about six months, Fitz asked him, well, how are things? Do you like Charleston? He says, I love it, but I'm so confused as to why people are naming their children after streets. Um, But, of course, the streets are named after the families. So it was unusual to name 
Jesus, Jesus, because it wasn't a family name. Now, actually, the name is just as easily translated as Joshua, right? That, that, that's actually uh, an appropriate translation. Uh, but Jesus is Jesus, uh, and what that means is that uh, God saves, right? That, that God saves his people. And so God has sent a rescuer in Jesus. His name means that, and that's the ministry he's lived out. Uh, but it would have been unusual, and certainly the people in Nazareth would have looked at Joseph and Mary very funny uh, as to where did you get that name from? Uh, and in the same way that if we encounter a funny name in Birmingham, we assume that it's funny, so it must be a family name, uh, but not so in the case of Jesus. Okay, how do we know that God is the only true God? How do we know that God is the only true God? Well, let's, uh, let's tell a, a little, let's, again, let's try to go to the Bible as much as we can. Uh, God has declared that he himself is the only God. Now, there are parts of the Old Testament which talks about you are a God amongst the gods and you are, uh, and Jesus himself being King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, but there really is only one uh, true God and the gods of the other nations, especially at the time of the Old Testament and even in today's world, are no gods at all. One of the most vivid images of this is when uh, the prophet uh, Elijah had a showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You can actually go to this place today and see where it happened. And does anybody know that story? What happened? If you're a boy, it's a really good story to read, uh, especially if you read on. But Elijah uh, was surrounded by many prophets of Baal, and Baal was a false god that was being worshipped by the Canaanites. And in the people of Israel, when they came into the land of Canaan, uh, there were still people that worshipped Baal. And as the years went on, the Jewish faith, the faith of the, of the Old Testament, got commingled with uh, this pagan faith that worshipped Baal. And uh, the prophets of Baal and the people who worshipped Baal were very happy to assent that, yes, your God... Yahweh, uh, Adonai, he, he's real, but he's just one amongst many gods. And so Elijah says, I challenge you to a spiritual showdown. And so what happens is they go up to the top of Mount Carmel, and Elijah says, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build an altar, which is just a platform, and we're going to put wood over top of it, and then you are going to pray that Baal sends down fire from heaven and consumes, consumes the wood. And the prophets of Baal say, you're on. So the prophets of Baal begin praying and bowing and scraping and doing all of that stuff. And this goes on for a while to the point that Elijah actually starts to make fun of them. Uh, and he even goes so far, and I'm going to go ahead and say it because uh, y'all are in the sixth grade, but also because it's in the Bible. Even at one point, Elijah says, maybe Baal's in the bathroom. You know, Baal can't hear you. What's he doing? Maybe he's just too busy to listen. He begins to mock them. And then when they finally have given up and realize this isn't working, uh, Elijah actually asks the servants there to douse the wood on top of the altar with water to actually soak it down. How many of y'all have ever tried to start a fire with wet wood? It doesn't work, does it? It might produce a lot of smoke, but it doesn't burn. And that wasn't the bet. Remember, the bet would be that the, the, the wood would be consumed. And then 
Uh, Elijah prays that you are the God who hears, and not for my sake, but that your name might be glorified, and that they might know that you are the one true God, rain down. And what does God do? He sends a fiery pillar to come down, and not only does it burn up all the wood, the fire that was sent down, but even the stones were reduced to ash. Meaning what? Right, he is the one true God. And all of a sudden, the prophets of Baal thought, rats. <laughs> uh, and uh, y'all can read what happens uh, next down in the Kidron Valley, what, what Elijah does exactly with those prophets um, down at the brook of Kidron. So, um, one, we believe that he is the one true God because the Bible has revealed him as such, but also how he's manifested himself uh, in the world. The other funny thing about our faith that is different from any other faith is that every other world faith talks about here's what you have to do to get to God. You have to pray, you have to go on pilgrimages, you have to do good works, uh, you have to behave in a certain way, you have to do certain things in order to get to God. And yet the Christian faith says God comes to you. He meets you where you are. He comes to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and he meets us where we are at our point of need. He becomes like us, which every other world faith would say, that's crazy. And you know what? They're right. It's completely crazy. Uh, and yet that is how God uh, has decided to manifest himself uh, as, as the one uh, true uh, God. Uh, so that doesn't mean that other people that believe other things aren't very sincere, because of course they are, um, but, uh, but God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. Uh, he is who he says he is, uh, and he is. All right, next question is, is it possible for people to become non-Christian after they were Christians, and how do you love your non-Christian friends? Okay, all right. Is it possible for people to become non-Christians after become Christian, and how do they love their non-Christian friends? Okay. Uh, the first thing is, how do you become a Christian? What constitutes being a Christian? Uh, a lot of people have a lot of ideas uh, about this. Uh, some people uh, would say, well, I'm a Christian uh, because I was baptized or I'm a Christian because I was confirmed, uh, or I'm a Christian because uh, I go to church, uh, or I consider myself a Christian because I try to be really good, but I don't go to church. All of those things are well and good in and of themselves, uh, but biblically speaking, that's not what makes a Christian. Uh, what makes a Christian, uh, and we see this often uh, throughout uh, the book of Acts, is he who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does that mean? If you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, you will be saved. You are indeed a Christian. Okay. Uh, Christianity is not primarily concerned with outward behavior, which sounds strange because uh, you may have heard people say things like, He's the most Christian person I've ever met. And what do they mean by that? They're really, really nice and really, really good, right? That's what that means. And, uh, and yet, Christianity is actually uh, interested in what is going on inside a person. 
Not that you try to be really good on the inside, but God understands what we need in order to be His people is a change of heart. He doesn't just take the hearts that we have and take the bad parts as if there are little bad parts here and little bad parts here and scrub them clean, but He actually gives us a new heart. No, not literally. You know, it's not as if you wake up one morning and there's a scar running down uh, your chest. Uh, but spiritually speaking, that is true, that God has given you new affections. So, let me see if I can think of an example of this. That God works in your life in such a way that all of a sudden your affections and what you desire and what you want are completely oriented toward Him. And you've acknowledged He is my Savior and my Lord. So have you ever... uh, How many of y'all went away uh, for spring break or are going someplace really fun this summer? None of you? Yeah, right. All right. Where, where are y'all going? Where are the Gregory's going? For spring break, you went to Ireland. Did anyone else go someplace warm uh, for spring break? Guy, where did you go? Costa Rica. Did you go fishing? No? Okay. Costa Rica. Ella, where did you go? St. Bart's. St. Bart's. I'm gonna be, if I believed in reincarnation, I'm coming back as one of y'all. So... All right, where'd you go? The beach. Okay, so when you were getting close to spring break, the, maybe even months before when your parents first said, we're going to Ireland, we're going to St. Bart's, we're going to Costa Rica, we're going to the beach, and especially as you got closer and closer to going on that trip, could you think of anything else? Yeah, well, it depends on where you went, I guess, right? All right. <laughs> But for many of you, weren't you just totally pumped to be going away and going to an amazing, incredible place and you were so excited about it that you practically forgot everything else that was going on around you, that your mind was consumed with thoughts of going on your spring break trip. In the same way, in the same way, when our hearts are given over to Jesus, He's always on our mind. Now that gets to the second part of the question, which is, Can you be a Christian and a non-Christian? Because in that question is the description of the feeling that we experience after the experience. So you are so excited to go on vacation on spring break to those amazing places. But then after you were there, you probably still thought about it quite a bit. Uh, But now it's been a couple weeks. Do you think about it as much anymore? No, you don't. It almost even seems like a distant memory. And so when it comes to Christianity, there's a great fear that many of us have that I'm just not as excited about Jesus as I once was. I'm not as consumed with him as I once was. And so I'm afraid that I don't believe in him anymore. Now, if you struggle with that, if you struggle with that, uh, that actually is an indicator that you're doing just fine. Uh, If you don't worry about that, if you you say, you know, I don't give a thought to Jesus, whatever, then you should be concerned. Then you should be concerned. But the fact of the matter is that our relationship with Jesus has a lot more to do with Jesus than it does for us. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that all those that the Father has given him, no one will be able to snatch them from his hand. So once you are in fellowship with Jesus Christ, once you've said, yes, Lord, I want you to be my Savior and my Lord in my life, 
Nothing and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you've done. Because one of the things that your parents, if they're honest, will, uh, will give testimony to is that there are times in their lives where they feel very far away from Jesus and that there are times where they feel very close to Jesus. But the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with us. The problem is, there's a great hymn that we sing uh, here at the Advent, and there's a great line that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And yet, Jesus is our good shepherd who pursues after us even when we wander away. And so, it is not possible to go from being a Christian into being a non-Christian. The Bible has no sense uh, of that. Now, it does talk about people who say that they're Christians, but they actually are not. They don't know the Lord Jesus. And then later on, they kind of uh, fall away uh, by the wayside. But if you begin to struggle and wonder if you're a Christian at all, don't look at yourself. Look at Jesus and his faithfulness. If you want proof, if you want proof that you're in a relationship with Jesus, I want you, when you come to the Advent, to walk into the nave, out the Debartalaban passageway door where the pulpit's on your right, and I want you to look up on the left to the middle window and see Jesus on the cross, and that is proof that you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ and that God loves you more than you could ever possibly know. Next. Okay. How do we know if we are going to heaven? Okay, that's uh, on the heels of this. Um, What gets us into heaven? Jesus gets us into heaven. So if we get to heaven and we're asked, why should we be allowed to come into heaven and enjoy eternal fellowship with God? If we begin to say, because... I made my bed every day while I was home uh, because I accomplished this uh, when I was in school uh, because uh, I was named, uh, you know, uh, best uh, all around in whatever category it is. Uh, We're all going to be found lacking. We're all going to be found wanting. And so when we stand before God's throne of judgment, Uh, That sounds a little bit scary, doesn't it? Uh, But for those of us who are putting our faith in Jesus, standing before his throne of judgment uh, ought to strike some fear in our hearts, uh, but also great hope because when we stand before the Lord and he says, why should I let you into heaven? We say, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, full stop. Nothing more, nothing less. We're putting all of our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ because he was able to live the life that we're unable to live, and he died the death that we were unable to die in order that we might uh, live and be made God's children. So if you want to be uh, sure of uh, spending eternity uh, with God and fellowship with him, uh, put your trust in Jesus and, and trust in him for your everything. What do people look like in heaven do we all look the, the same? Does race, gender, or age show? That's a really good question. What do we look like when we're in heaven? Uh, do, does uh, race, uh, gender, facial hair, what? Age, age, show. I'm doing that for you, Mark Gregory. Okay. All right. 
All right, let me, these questions, there's always, so when y'all ask these questions, there's always a backstory to them. So I don't think that you're asking them in the abstract. Um, and I do want to go ahead and, um, and uh, poke at one of the bales of our day, and that is our own vanity, uh, that we will undergo um, pretty significant medical procedures in order to look a certain way in our culture. And, uh, and we will absolutely uh, nearly kill ourselves uh, exercising in order to look uh, a certain way. I'm convinced that one day archaeologists are going to dig up our gyms and say, oh my goodness, they were a vicious people. They tortured one another. Here's the proof. Here's the equipment that they used. Um, that and, and to what end? I mean, there you are lying in the casket and someone's going to say, they look really good. Um, and of course, that's not, not true. I, I, want, I want to, when I'm lying there in the casket, I want y'all to be able to come up and be like, man, he really went for it. Uh, uh, I, I, I want to look like I really had lived life. I want, my, I want the car to show the mileage. And uh, so that sort of mentality causes a particular thought to creep into our minds. And we're not the first ones. Because if you look at medieval cathedrals in Europe, uh, and even, in fact, here at the Advent, uh, and this is not necessarily anything wrong with it, but angels are always depicted in a certain way. And what way is that, typically? The Victorians put in cherubs, but how are angels depicted? Beautiful, and actually at a very particular age, 33. Why? That's how old Jesus was when he died, right? 33. Uh, when in fact... There is no biblical evidence for that. If there is any biblical evidence, when we get to heaven, we're going to see old people. We're going to see young people. We're going to see people of different races. Uh, people of, what was the other one? Genders, right? We're going to see men. Uh, we're going to see women. And I know that this is going to be hard for some of us to hear, but we're also going to see wear and tear on our bodies, even our glorified bodies. How do we know that? What will Jesus look like when we see him? His hands. Now think, if you got up to heaven and you looked and you said, but Jesus, there's no nail print, there's no scar in your hands. He says, yeah, I got a little work done. <laughs> the, the scars are, are, are glorious and actually point. I had a conversation with a woman once who was very distressed uh, it was a cousin, so I can, I'm going to go ahead and rat her out. Um, and, and she was saying that, you know, she's had, uh, at this point, she had had four children, and uh, she was upset with what those four children had done uh, to her body and was trying to figure out any way possible in order to restore herself to her pre-four children body. And, uh, and there was another cousin sitting with us, uh, and, and they said... But you know that those scars, those marks, are reminders of your children. That in some sense that they're actually salvific. That they point to something beautiful and great. And our culture just wants to erase uh, all of that. I think it's really interesting too. Um, here we go. Yeah, riding the hobby horse. The... Um, uh, 
If you watch movies today, and Meg Ryan is the epitome of this, uh, I mean, there comes a point in time where a woman has to stop buying her clothes at the Gap. And if you watch Meg Ryan movies, and, and, or any movie really, the attempt is to make women to look younger and younger and younger and younger. So if you've watched, I mean, this is, y'all weren't even alive when this happened. You've got Mail or Sleepless in Seattle or whatever any of those movies are. Uh, there's an assumption that uh, Meg Ryan is in her early 20s when, in fact, she's 10 years older than that. But now I want you to think about Audrey Hepburn. Do you know how old Audrey Hepburn was when, when she made breakfast at Tiffany's? Now, she looks much older than she actually is. And isn't that funny that actresses in her day attempted to look older than they actually were? And so she was actually only in her early 20s when she filmed that and yet carried herself and looked in such a way that she might even be 10 years older uh, than that. And so um, I'm off the question. Uh, but what I would encourage you all uh, to do is to understand uh, that your identity and who you are is not in the way that you look. It's in Jesus. And if you want to look more like anything, look more like him. All right, how will Jesus beat the devil? How will Jesus beat the devil? Well, the book of Revelation uh, tells us that. Uh, that there is going to be a great battle in which Jesus will finally triumph over the devil and that we already know that the devil's doom is sure. Uh, there's an idea floating around and that some of us have is that the devil is God's opposite. That is, uh, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But you know what? The devil's not. God is omniscient. He knows everything. But actually, the knowledge of the devil is limited. Uh, that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And yet, the devil is restricted to a particular place at any given moment. He can't be everywhere uh, at once because the devil is a created being. And the one who made him will be the one who ultimately uh, destroys him uh, and so that he no longer has reign or dominion uh, over this earth. And so I would point you to the book of Revelation and you can talk about where that... In fact, you know where the battle happens? I was just talking about Elijah and the prophets in the Kidron Valley. That's where the battle happens. So there you go. At the foot of Mount Carmel. Okay, if God is in control, then why didn't God stop the Holocaust or other world problems? And why didn't God just start over when Adam and Eve sinned? Right. It'd be great if he had just started over. Okay, so... We read in the Bible that Jesus was God's plan of salvation all along, before even the foundations of the earth, which means that it wasn't as if God was there in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve fell and then God thought, oh no, I need a plan B. That wasn't it at all. In fact, uh, God made Adam and Eve knowing that this was going to happen, which sounds... Kind of hard, doesn't it? But here's what I would say about that. As wonderful and as great as the fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed in Eden with God, do you know that it's actually going to be better with us and God? There's a, 
a, um, a Christmas song that sometimes our choir sings called Adam Lay Bounden. It's a, it's a pretty popular one. And there's a line in it that says, uh, blessed be the time that apple taken was. I don't like that line. Because what the guy's saying is that blessed be the day that Adam and Eve ate of the tree, uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One, it wasn't an apple. It wasn't a pomegranate. Don't worry about all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I had a very hard time understanding how that could be a blessing when, in fact, it is a curse. But I think what the author was getting at was not trying to glorify that moment because it was terrible and it was awful, but because of Jesus, because of what he's done for us on the cross and through his resurrection, we now have a restored fellowship with God that is closer and more intimate and will be even more real than Adam and Eve had. That our salvation through Jesus is greater than even what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of of Eden. And so, uh, as hard as it is to believe in the Bible, doesn't tell us why this is, that God knew that it was going to happen and let it happen. Um, That's the way that it was. When it comes to things like that, as well as awful, tragic events like the Holocaust, is that the Bible doesn't really leave us much with the why behind it. What we do know is that God is not simply up there twiddling his thumbs. He's not saying whatever. Uh, He does care, and in fact, he feels those tragedies uh, more than any of us could ever imagine. And yet, those tragedies are not because of God. Those tragedies are because of sin uh, that has been in our world. And so because of sin in our own lives, uh, we do things uh, that not only hurt ourselves but hurt other people. And we think things uh, that are at the expense uh, of our own lives and other people. And one of the ways uh, in which... Uh, and so God's response to sin is a word nobody wants to talk about, and that's a word, that's the word wrath or judgment. So when you do something bad at home... Are you excited to talk to your mom and dad about it? How come? You're scared. What are you afraid of? And what else? What's the worst punishment y'all have ever had? I'm curious. No video games? Guy, I'm moving into your house. No, so, so when, when, you, when you've done something wrong, you expect something to be done in turn, Right? So we do see times in the Bible where, where earth was really, really bad. So in the Garden of, um, of Eden, God cast out Adam and Eve. And then not that long after that, the whole world had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what did God do? He flooded the earth. He flooded the entire earth. But we find out later on that in spite of all of that, that one of the ways in which God's judgment is manifested against people is that he gives them what they want. That that's actually a sign of judgment, that people are given over to themselves, that if that's what you want, and if you think you know better, then I'm going to give that to you. So things like the Holocaust uh, and other things point to our need for mercy in Jesus more and more. Yes.
Yeah, so is, is he hurting them or are we hurting them? Yeah, it doesn't. Look, I'm with you, sister. Um, it doesn't make uh, much sense. It doesn't make much sense at all. And that's why people will say things like, this evil is senseless. And if we try to make sense of it, we, we just can't explain it. I can give you another example of how God has worked through something. And that is, uh, and I use this example often because it's close to the Advent's heart. But in 1994 in Rwanda, in 100 days' time, a million people were killed. A hundred days, a million people. That's 10,000 people uh, a day. Is that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and it, it was really terrible and awful. And after that, one of the big culprits or one, one of the groups that was responsible for some of the killing was the church. The church was complicit in it. One priest uh, offered his church building uh, a sanctuary and said, come in and I'll protect you uh, from the uh, Hutus. And so the Tutsis, and they were killing them because they were a member of a certain tribe. Uh, they came in the church and the, the priest went and told the Hutu army where they were and they bulldozed the church on top of them. Uh, that, that was, I, I wish I could say that that was the exception, but there were a number of incidents like that. And so after uh, the... Um, army came over from Uganda and put an end to the genocide, it would be understandable that the people in Rwanda would say, I'm turning my back on God. Not only did he allow it, because that would have been an understandable thought, but his people, the church, helped perpetrate it. But what happened? Instead of that, the people of Rwanda turned square and faced the Lord Jesus Christ and called out for mercy. And an incredible work of reconciliation was done and is being done in that country between uh, the two tribes. And um, uh, and it's it's a remarkable thing, Uh, and that is because in the midst of senselessness, the only one who can make sense of it is God himself. And so rather than turning away from him, uh, we find that our only hope and the only thing that will keep Rwanda or any other nation on the face of the earth from turning to such bloodshed again is God himself and to cry out for mercy and to seek him. Uh, To the point that uh, our friend Bishop Mbanda and Bishop Sam uh, in their diocese is the prison, the main prison uh, that houses the, the convicts, the people who were convicted after the genocide, the leaders of the genocide are in that prison. And Bishop Sam and Bishop Mbanda are both Tutsis who had family killed in the genocide. And they go into this prison amongst Hutus to do confirmations. And the first time Bishop Mbanda went in, he said that he was scared out of his mind because he was taught to be afraid of these people. And yet, he said, it's been one of the greatest blessings in his ministry to see that people who are warring against each other because of Jesus have been made brothers in him. And, and how remarkable uh, a thing that is. And so, can't make sense of it. Uh, it is indeed uh, senseless. Uh, but we know that our only hope for rescue from such things uh, is, uh, is God uh, himself. 
what happens to little babies if they die before they are old enough to know God? Okay, so what happens to babies uh, when, uh, when they die? This is the one time I'm going to use something that I prepared um, beforehand uh, because I get this uh, question uh, a lot, and I decided to, to put some thoughts down on paper for somebody um, um, who uh, had experienced uh, this. Okay. All right, so some biblical affirmations I want to get out of the way first. One, we're all conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity, and so we bear the stain of original sin from the moment of our conception. Right? So we're not born into the world innocent, like Sarah McLaughlin would say, but in fact we're all born into the world OS positive, original sin positive. Uh, and if you don't believe that, uh, we're going to put you down, we're going to put you up in the nursery with the preschoolers uh, one Sunday and you tell me uh, what you think. Uh, in fact, I asked some preschoolers one time in my last church, who taught y'all how to misbehave? And they were right, like, nobody. We got it. So that's the first thing. Two, God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Three, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the only means by which we might be saved. And four, there are two possibilities for eternal destiny, the redeemed to heaven and the unredeemed to judgment and hell. Okay, so with these, these thoughts in mind, uh, how can we believe that those who die in infancy are of the elect and with Jesus in heaven? And I believe that because the Bible, I think, teaches that. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will be judged on the basis of deeds committed in the body. That's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. That is, we are judged not based upon original sin, of which we are all infected, but will be asked to give an account for that which we have done in our lifetime. We will answer for our sin, not for the sin of Adam. Have those who have died as infants committed such sins of the body? No. A biblical text that is helpful in this understanding is Deuteronomy 1. When the Israelites rebelled against God in the wilderness, he said that they would not see the promised land. However, the little ones were exempted, and God explains why they were not included in the judgment in 139. They would not be judged based upon their father's sins. I think this biblical understanding shows that infant salvation is not only a possibility, but a reality. The finished work of Christ has removed the stain of original sin from those who die as infants. As infants, they are incapable of committing sins in the body and die secure in the grace of Jesus. Now, Obviously, we're not the first to think on such things, and I've run across a number of things that have been written uh, and are of, of much higher authority than I am. Here are a few. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, who was the pastor of a church in north of London in the 1700s, wrote to close friends who had lost a young child. And he said, I hope you are both well reconciled to the death of your child. I cannot be sorry for the death of infants. How many storms do they escape? Nor can I doubt in my private judgment that they are included in the election of grace. Charles Spurgeon, who's kind of popular around here, was a pastor in London in the late 19th century. And he said, Now let every mother and father here present know assuredly that it is well with the child if God hath taken it away from you in its infant days. Spurgeon turned this, or in the womb, Spurgeon turned this conviction into an evangelistic call. Many of you are parents who have children in heaven. Is it not desirable thing that you should go there too? 
He continued, Mother, unconverted mother, from the battlements of heaven, your child beckons you to paradise. Father, ungodly father, impenitent father, the little eyes that once looked joyously on you look down upon you now, and the lips which can scarcely learn to call you father, are they, ere they were sealed by the silence of death, may be heard as with a still small voice sang to you this morning, Father, must we be forever divided by the great gulf which no man can pass? Doth not nature itself put a sort of longing in your soul that you may be bound in the bundle of life with your own children? It's a pretty powerful way to think about it, isn't it? Jesus instructed his disciples that they should permit the children to come to him. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I believe the Lord graciously and freely receives all those who die in infancy or in the womb, not on the basis of their innocence or worthiness, but by His grace, made theirs through the atonement He purchased on the cross. When we look into the grave of one of these little ones, we do not place our hope and trust in the false promise of unbiblical theology, in the instability of sentimentalism, in the cold analysis of human logic, nor in the cowardly refuge of ambiguity. We place our faith in Christ and trust Him to be faithful to His Word. We claim the promises of the Scriptures and the assurance of grace of our Lord. We know that heaven will be filled with those who never grow beyond infancy on earth, but in heaven will greet us completed in Christ. So that's what I have to say about children in infancy. Okay, last question. Did you ever want to have a different job? This morning, yes. Uh, one of the uh, Bing Edwards, who read the first lesson, pointed out to me that we had a significant leak that I had never seen in the nave. And um, the worst two words in ministry are slate roof. And uh, and so uh, at that moment, uh, you know, like the old Southwest uh, Airlines campaign, want to get away. Uh, I did want to get away at that moment. Of course I do. Of course I do. Uh, and y- right now, I mean, y'all are at a point in school where you probably wish that you had already graduated high school. But let me assure you, the grass is brown everywhere. <laughs> and if you look upon your parents and think that these are the golden years that you long for, you're wrong. You are in your golden years. Uh, you have uh, basically the freedom to, I know it doesn't feel this way, uh, but you have an incredible amount of freedom to pursue your hopes and dreams right now. And you have your whole life uh, set uh, in front of you. And uh, when I look back uh, on my life, and even uh, my life now, of course there are days when, um, uh, when I would like to be doing something different, uh, but they tend to be fleeting uh, from my house, you can hear the cars at Boater, uh, Barber Motor uh, Sports Raceway. You know, the, the, the Grand Prix is in town this weekend. I can hear the cars, and I want to get in one. I want to race a car uh, badly. Uh, but, um, but I really I, I, I love, uh, I love what I do, and I understand that that is uh, a real gift. But what I'd also say to you is that if you find yourself in a profession that you absolutely dislike, it's okay to switch jobs. It's okay to switch jobs. 
even if there's a lot of pressure from your family or the community around you, as long as you're not being recklessly irresponsible, because here again is, uh, is the difference between your parents and you. But I had a friend who was really racking himself to death because he had a job offer in San Francisco and a job offer in Manhattan. And he said, but I just don't want to make the wrong decision or do I stay in the job I'm in right now? I said, how can you make a mistake? Like you understand the worst case scenario is that you move to San Francisco or Manhattan. That's terrible, right? You're fine. Uh, You're fine. And if you get up there and you say, you know what, two years, I don't like what I'm doing, uh, you've not really lost anything. You've lived two years in a big city and you've uh, built your resume and you've built some relationships and you've got some experience under your belt uh, and, and you go someplace else. So I think it's perfectly normal and natural uh, at any given moment during the day uh, to think, uh, I-, I wish that I had a different job. I will say this, that the best job I've probably ever had in the world is the one I had before this one, when I was an associate under Frank Limehouse. <laughs> because I basically did whatever I wanted, and if somebody got mad, they went and talked to him. Uh, and so... Um, and if you notice this morning in the parking lot, Catherine Jacobs stole my spot. I don't know what she was thinking. Uh, uh, and she was very apologetic about it. But I told her, I said, well, you parked in the spot. You got the job, sister. Uh, and so any complaints that you have this morning, please talk to Catherine Jacob. Uh, and, and she'll sort it out. And on Christmas Eve, I'll often say, you know, you can have my seat, uh, but you have to preach. Uh, so uh, it goes with that. And that's the thing I love about my job is the preaching uh, but more than that, the relationships and for the people. Uh, if, if, if I didn't love you and I didn't feel like you loved me, I'd, I'd be in Costa Rica, guy. That's exactly where I'd be. All right, y'all. Well, so grateful for you and, uh, and that you're being confirmed and, and be there to witness it. Confirmation, a little bit of a twist this year uh, on April 29th, uh, next Sunday at the 5 p.m. service. Bishop Sloan will be with us. And uh, really excited to hear you commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ before your church family. Um, uh, Makes me weep. I'm so excited and so happy for you and what God has done in your lives. So let's pray for you. Don't clap for me. No one else ever does. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the precious gift of faith. And Lord, for the blessing that these sixth graders have. It's easy to take for granted to have Christian parents, to grow up in a church family to know at even a young age that they're loved by you. It's such a gift. And so, Lord, we pray that that gift would not be squandered, that faith would come alive in their hearts, and that these sixth graders and every single one of us might turn to you and live and know you as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.